Well, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was two weeks ago, I tried to free you up in Christ from having to do any kind of New Year's resolution. You remember that? You don't have to do any of that stuff because Christ, in His work for us, has done everything that is necessary for us to be welcomed into the presence of the Holy God. This is what we've sung about already. So in light of that, how many of you, raise your hand, have committed to do some New Year's resolutions? Only, only a couple of you. you know, but I was expecting more of you to raise your hands. So I don't do New Year's year resolutions. I do January resolutions. Just because I know my own, <laughs> my own limitations, my own weaknesses. I know that I will fail if I go for the whole year. So I do January resolutions. Um, and I read recently a, an article on resolutions um, basically saying how useless they were. And I took issue, though, with some of it. So I don't think that resolutions can do anything in bringing you into the presence of a holy God. It can't make you right with God. Changing yourself, changing your behavior can't do any of those things. But one thing this author said is that you can't change yourself. And I took issue with that because there are some ways you can change yourself. You can modify your behavior. That doesn't make you right with God if you change a certain habit or another. But in some ways, you can, you can change yourself. You can get better at certain hobbies. You can get rid of bad habits by certain practices, by, by perhaps resolutions. It has worked for some people. But the point that I, I made with trying to free you up in Christ is those things, behavior modification, they don't get at the heart of what it is you really need. Those, they're good and they're fine. Maybe you should do something. Maybe there are habits you should change. Maybe there are habits you should get rid of and things you should add to yourself. But they don't get down to the very root of what it is that you need. What is it that you need? More than anything else in the world, what is it that you meet, need and how will you go about getting that? When I was a young boy, I remember vividly a weekly routine in spring, summer, and fall, and it was my brother and I cutting the grass. And I would put on my headphones, and I would have my Walkman, a real Walkman with tape, tape player in it, and I would blast uh, Christian music. I would blast Petra. How many of you have ever heard of Petra? Yes, the original rock and roll, well, one of the original rock and roll, Christian rock and roll groups. And I would, I probably looked crazy out there. I was singing probably as loud as I could over the lawnmower and these, this song blasting my ears. And one of the songs I remember was from Petra, I Need to Hear From You. It was kind of like a ballad. It was a slower song, but it really had a strong chorus. I need to hear from you, Lord. Lord, I need to hear from you. Deep in my heart, I need to hear from you. And then they went to kind of a doctrinal area, I wouldn't go. They, they said, deep inside my heart, I need to hear from you. Just a still, small voice will get me through. In other words, they were, they were calling out to God. They were praying to God for some sort of, some sort of confirmation some, that He's still there, that He's still working, some sort of whisper in their hearts so that they would know God was still with them in the midst of their struggle. At the time, I really resonated with that. I wanted to hear from God, too. And yet, I have to admit, I have never heard the audible voice of God. 
Some, if I told that to some people, it would really shock them, and they would say, and you're a pastor? I have never heard the audible voice of God, besides, of course, the preaching of his word or the reading of his word. One thing they got right, though, was their desperation. We do need to hear from God. Desperately. This is one thing that you need desperately. You, you may not, we may not realize just how desperate we are to hear the word of God. And we're desperate to hear it because it is powerful. You can't imagine how powerful God's word is. You think about the things that are powerful in our world that people think are power, powerful. They see amazing things and they are blown away and they say that experience was so powerful. And they want more of it. They want more of that, that power, more of that excitement, more of that feeling of awe that something in their heart is met. Well, I can tell you that there is nothing that can compare with the power of God speaking his word wasn't it god himself who said let there be light he brought the whole of creation into existence by the power of his word that is powerful is there anything in our whole world that can compare to god speaking his word there's not and this is what you need well john has gone to great pains to show us already in the first four chapters of the book of john that Jesus himself is this eternal God who spoke creation into existence. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus himself is this eternal God, and he speaks to us, and we need his Word. And when, when I say the, we need the words of Jesus, some have talked about how they are red-letter Christians. Have you heard that term before? That they want to take particularly the words of Jesus and live by those words. So they, they, they're red-letter Christians. And this Bible, I do have some Bibles that are red-letter Christians, uh, red-letter Bibles. They, they highlight the words of Jesus. And yet, if we were to be consistent, wouldn't we say, well, you just need to make the whole Bible red letters then? This is all the words of Christ because He is God. He is the eternal God in human form. Jesus is God, and the word he speaks is powerful. And I think this hones in on a particularly important theme for John in this passage. Just in this short, this short little story of Jesus healing this official's son. So I want us to consider for the, the time that we have this morning, Jesus' powerful word. I want you to go away this morning with an increase in your confidence in the word of Jesus Christ. With a, with a, a greater awareness and understanding of the power of his word so that you will toss aside the things of this world which seem to hold power. They're nothing compared to the words of Jesus. First, I want us to consider, as we walk through this passage, first I want you to consider the sufficiency of his word. His word is sufficient, and that makes it powerful. 
It is enough. It's what you need. And there are other things you can toss aside because His Word is sufficient. See this in verses 43 through 48. First, notice these few verses, 43, 44, and 45. It's kind of a transitional passage from the previous section. Remember, we've been in John chapter 4 talking about Jesus is meeting with the Samaritan woman and how all of these Samaritans came to faith in Jesus because of His Word. And then we're told in verse 43, after two days he departed for Galilee. He was in Galilee before and now he departed to Galilee. For Jesus, this is a parenthetical note by the author, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. That seems confusing. I think what it's saying is something kind of ironic. Jesus knew he would have no honor in his hometown, the, the, the larger area of Galilee, and that's why he went. He was just with the Samaritans who received him, these Gentiles. And now he's going back to his homeland because he knows he will have no honor there. But then that might give us a little more confusion because we go to 45 and we see, so when he came to Galilee... The Galileans welcomed him. Wait, I thought, you, I thought you said he would have no honor in his hometown. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And our ears should perk up at that because we've heard something like that before. So go back to chapter 2, verse 23. This is what verse 45 is referring to. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. They believed him in him in a sense. They believed in him because of what they had seen, the miracles they had seen. And that was insufficient for what's required to follow after Jesus. So I think the author here is pointing out that these who welcomed him welcomed him as one who could work signs and nothing more. Not as one who was the savior of the world as the Samaritans has, had just done. Not as who he was in and of himself, the God-man who had come to rescue his people, the Messiah who had come to fulfill all of God's word and bring his people into the kingdom of God. So after this transitional verse, we go to verse 46. He came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. The author here is tying this back to the miracle that Jesus performed in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2, and turning the water into the wine. This is a, what, what you could call an inclusion. It serves as brackets around that miracle and this miracle. Th there's a certain container that the author is showing us. Um, as I mentioned in the, the worship preparation, we're coming to the close of a particular section where Jesus, after this section, will continue working works, doing signs and wonders, teaching about himself, and yet now there's going to be an increased tension between him and the Jewish leaders, an increasing pressure from the Jewish leaders, an increasing intensification of the conflict between them and him so that they will eventually try to kill him. Now, there's an, a royal official who came 
to Jesus because his son was ill. Verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And look at Jesus' response. So Jesus said to him, unless you, that's in the plural, you, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This is a rebuke of this man as a representative for all of those who are gathered together in Galilee, who have welcomed him because of his signs and wonders. And he says, y'all won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. In other words, it shouldn't be this way. You shouldn't have to have the signs and wonders to believe in me. And, and once, if, you see, if you believe just because of the signs and wonders, it doesn't give you what you actually need. You need me, and it just puts your faith in signs and wonders and not in me. With this rebuke, Jesus is highlighting the sufficiency of his word alone as ground to believe in him. His word is sufficient to believe who he is and what he has said he has come to do. Now now contrast this statement, this rebuke of Jesus, with the Samaritans who Jesus had just spent two days with. What happened with the Samaritans? Jesus spoke with the Samaritan woman. He simply spoke to her. He gave her no sign. He gave her no miracle. He simply spoke to her and and revealed himself to her as the Messiah. He told her all that she had ever done. She goes back to the Samaritan people. Says, come meet him. Could this be the Christ? Jesus spends two days with them. We have no record of a miracle in Samaria. And they believe in him. Those who are not the people of God flock to him when he speaks a word. And they trust in him. And God's very own people need, the Jews need signs and wonders if they will believe in him. How might we compare this to our day here and now? What would it take for people that you know to believe in Jesus? To believe that Jesus is who he says that he is, to believe that he's the Messiah, to believe that their greatest need is found in him and nothing they could find in this world, no resolutions, no amount of material goods. What would it be for them? Unless you see evidence, unless you see scientific evidence, you will not believe. Unless you see Signs and wonders. Unless you see miracles take place, well, then you're, you're not going to believe. What would it be for those that you know, those unbelievers? Or we could, we could even take this even closer to home to ourselves, couldn't it? What are you tempted with in regards to this? When you're tempted to doubt God's word, when you're tempted to doubt his care for you, his love for you in the midst of difficulties, Unless you see a good life, you will not believe. Unless you see exciting things, you will not believe. Unless you see your needs met, you will not believe. It could be our circumstances. It could be other words that we're looking for. Unless I have additional words to confirm 
that all that you've said is true, I, I cannot believe. In those moments of temptation, what do you struggle with? We are seeking to walk by faith and not by sight. And yet we find ourselves struggling with this ourselves. We find ourselves doubting the words of Christ. We find ourselves believing what we see and and desiring more than what He has already given us. Well, Jesus, I think, believed uh, a common refrain from people that swim in our stream, perhaps, when it comes to to church growth and, and inviting people to church. You win them. What you win them with is what you win them to. Jesus knew that if He won people with signs and wonders, that's the very thing He's winning them to. Not to Himself. He's winning them to meeting their own needs. He's winning them to seeing amazing things. We all love to be thrilled. And yet Jesus wanted to win them to Himself. He's, He's saying with this rebuke, signs and wonders aren't sufficient for what you really need. My Word is sufficient. Trust in My Word. We see... Also, not only is Jesus' word sufficient, it's also true. (laughs) Sounds simple enough. What Jesus says is true. But if something is not true, no matter how good it might make you feel, no matter how happy it might make you feel, if it's not true, then it it doesn't matter. It, It has no real power to accomplish anything, to work what it is he wants it to work. We see the desperation of this man. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus rebukes him, along with everybody else. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And yet the man persists. He, he continues coming to Jesus. He, he has a desperate need for Jesus to help him. And I, I think, although as we'll see, I, I don't think... He still received the rebuke in in quite the right way. He still models for us a great desperation. We we need Jesus. We we don't feel the desperation that we ought to feel when it comes to our need for Christ. And yet this man persists in coming to Jesus because his son is ill. Come before my child dies. And Jesus responds and says to him, Go, your son dies will live. Actually, perhaps you you have, if you have the New American Standard or if you have the King James Version, you'll see a different verb tense there. The ESV says, your son will live. The New American Standard and the King James say, your son lives. Present tense. I, I think that's a better translation. Your son lives. Go. Be on your way. Your son lives. Now, Jesus rebukes him, and I think this man is still seeking him out of wanting signs and wonders, out of a selfish desire that his son would be healed. Now, that's not wrong in itself. We would want our child to be healed too, wouldn't we? But he hasn't recognized yet who Jesus really is. He hasn't recognized the identity of Jesus, that he is the Messiah. And so Jesus here demonstrates his kindness to us that he condescends even to this man's request. Even after a rebuke, he condescends to him and meets his need. He relieves this man's distress 
by saying, go, your son lives. And the man believes him. He believes the word that Jesus said. Now that's what we're looking for. That's the contrast between believing in signs and wonders and simply believing the word which Jesus says. He believes the word and he goes his way. Now what was the belief? We're going to see another belief, but here he says he believed his word and went his way. I think this belief is believing the truth of what Jesus says. That his son had gotten better and he lives. Go, your son lives. Somehow he's gotten, he's gotten better. In this way, he views Jesus as a prophet. One who is able to predict from afar that his son is better. He tells him, he speaks truth to him that his son is better. And what happens? As he was going back home, so he believes Jesus. He's relieved of his distress. He starts going home and his servants meet him on the way. And they told him that his son was recovering. It's a confirmation that, of the truthfulness of Jesus' words. Now actually the words here are similar to that we see in verse 50. Jesus said, go, your son lives. And here his servants meet him and tell him that his son lives. Same, same present tense. His son lives. This is a refrain. This is a confirmation that what Jesus says is sufficient but also true. Every word that Jesus speaks is true. A word is not powerful if it is untrue. How many of you have heard the name of Harold Camping? He is a very popular radio host over the last couple of decades. I think he, he may have died recently. But in years ago, he, he predicted by doing some kind of mathematical mumbo-jumbo in Scripture that the end of the world was coming, that Jesus was returning on May 21st, 2011. I, I remember actually being at an Indiana Pacers game. I believe it was around that time, 2010, 2011, before May 21st. And as we streamed, as all the people streamed out of the the Colosseum, there were lots of people dressed in bright orange vests and they were handing out pamphlets. And they were telling us that Jesus was coming back May 21st, 2011. Get ready. Get ready because this is happening. And they believed it with all of their hearts. What else would make you stand outside of a Colosseum and do something like that? So, such an extravagant claim, such an amazing claim, and try to convince other people to come along with you and to believe you. They believed it with all of their hearts. And so can you imagine how heartbreaking it must have been for them on May 21st, 2011? How devastating it must have been for them to find out what they thought was true, what this man had told them was true, was absolutely false. They've wasted their lives. Some of them had sold everything they had because if the end's coming, you don't need anything. Well, the stakes are no less important for us. The risk is no less for us. We're basing our lives. Those of you who have 
trusted in Christ and committed to be his disciples, those of you who have come to faith in Jesus, you are risking everything that what Jesus says is true. And if what he says is not true, then you have believed in vain and you have wasted your life. What if, this, what if the man, the royal official, had been going back home and met his servants and they said to him, we're sorry, you don't need to bother Jesus anymore. Your son has died. Jesus would not have been who he said he was. He would have been a fraud, a liar. But thankfully, brothers and sisters, I do believe and I testify to you from God's holy word that every word Jesus has ever uttered is true. Bank on it. It's worth the risk. Put your whole life on this fact that Jesus is who he says he is. Some of you, if you're not believers, children or teenagers, you, you may be hesitant to do that. You may be hesitant to put everything you've had, everything you have, and base it on the fact that what Jesus says is true. You maybe want to hold back and say, well, what if, it, what if it's not exactly true? I don't want to spend my life following Jesus if some other religion is true or I can just live this life for joy for myself. All I can tell you is at the end of your life, you will have missed it. You will then realize you will then realize that you should have believed every word Jesus spoke, that it was worth it, that he indeed did tell the truth. And for you, brothers and sisters who believe it, what a joyful time that will be. It will be, it'll, it will be so amazing. You, we will stand there and we will, we will stand and wonder, it was all true. Like we believed it, but it was all true. It really was all true. Every promise Every word about the future, every word about who you are, every word about who he is, it is all true and you can trust it. We have no hope if he has lied, but if it's true, we must give everything to him. His word is sufficient and truthful, but at the last we see that his word is also effective. It is powerful because of its effectiveness. We see this in verses 52 to 54. This is a, kind of an, an amazing turn of events when this man asks this question. It, it gives us a deeper understanding, a deeper layer of what's going on here. What does he ask? So this man asks the servants, at what hour did he begin to recover? At what hour did he gain his strength? At what hour did he get better? And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The seventh hour may refer to around 1 p.m., but that's not the important part. We go on in verse 40, 53, and we see the important part. The father then knew that that was the hour Jesus had said to him, your son lives. Do you see the deeper layer that this question now provides for us? The timing of the son's recovery shows us that Jesus is not just a prophet. It shows the man and his servants that Jesus is not just one who speaks truth, but that he is one who 
causes things to happen by his speaking of truth. He does things by speaking. He says, your son lives. In the very moment Jesus says, your son lives, he lives. It's true. It becomes true because Jesus said it. This is the power of Jesus' word. God said, let there be light. And the moment he says it, there is light. Jesus says, your son lives. And the moment he says it, his son lives. He's not just a prophet who speaks. He's the cause. Only Jesus can do this. Think about other religions who claim that their prophet or their leader speaks truth. They claim that the Quran is true. They claim that the Book of Mormon is true. They claim that this book or that book is true. They, they claim that the words that this person spoke are true. But as far as I know, none of them are able to claim that what he actually says brings about the change that he wants. That he is able to affect by the word he speaks what he wants to. Only Jesus. Only Jesus does this because he is God and because his word is powerful. Now notice also the word he speaks. He's, he's setting us up, the author and Jesus, he's setting us up for things to come in this book. Over the next several chapters, Jesus is going to speak a lot about life. Your son lives. See, Jesus is the author of life. He connects this, the author connects this miracle back to his first miracle at Cana, where he turns water into wine to, uh, to signal that he is bringing in a new age, the messianic age, this, this age of abundance, this age of fulfillment, where all God's promises are being filled in this person, and he connects it, not only is he the one who brings the joy of the new age, he brings life. He's the one who brings eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He brings about life, as we sang already, by his death. He gives others life by dying himself. He, he raises up others from the dead by him going down into the grave. This is how you will have life, brothers and sisters, if you believe on this one who gives life. Life. Jesus' word is effective. You've, I'm sure, heard of the word of faith movement or the, the motto or phrase, name it and claim it. The word of faith movement says that we ought to use our words in this creative sort of way, that our words have power to bring about that which we speak. I'll admit that we do, our words do have a certain power. You can injure someone very badly by abusing them with your speech. Abusive speech can be just as damaging, if not worse, more damaging than physical abuse. You can strengthen someone with your words, build them up, encourage them. You can, you can bring joy to someone's heart by a word that you speak. So I don't mean to say that those things aren't true, but there are things that the word of faith movement, of course, gets wrong. It's easy to beat up on them. I, I do it somewhat regularly, maybe too much. Consider some things they get wrong about this, this word of faith, how our words have power. First, 
They're wrong in that it's not our words which carry power to affect change, but Jesus' words. Our, our words in and of themselves have no power to bring about supernatural change, to change you spiritually or to build you up spiritually. They have no power in and of themselves to, to put $100 in your wallet. If I speak it, it doesn't come about. My words don't have that creative effect. They also get wrong that it is not a means of fulfilling our own selfish desires or getting what we want. We don't name it and claim it that we're going to get a good parking space because that would be simply another way of doing the, the signs and wonders, seeking God just to meet my needs for my selfish sake. The word of faith movement also gets it wrong in that they often use Jesus' words in a manner inconsistent with their in intention, meaning, or context. And so we wouldn't want to go those routes. But consider what it gets right. We can consider what they get right. One, Jesus' words of promise have real power. Jesus' word has effective power. And two, they actually, his words actually accomplish things. Sometimes we, perhaps we can forget the supernatural power of Jesus' word. And not only is it sufficient for us, it's all that we need, that it's truthful, but it's also effective. And so what do we do with that? What, what then do we, what then should we do with this understanding that Jesus' words are sufficient for us, truthful and effective for us. Well, we should, we should read them. We should yearn for them. We should treasure them more than, than gold. We should treasure them more than any word that anyone else could speak. We, we, we know there's nothing else that we need except for Christ and his word to us what more could he say to us than what he's already said to us for our life and our faith and our salvation first we we must come to him and believe his word not needing other words not needing excitements not needing him to meet our needs so that then we might believe him but believing in his simple word believing in what he has spoken What you have been one with is what you have been one to. Have you been one by Jesus and his word? Or might you peer down in your heart and find that maybe you've been won by something else? That if your life suddenly was destroyed, that your health was suddenly destroyed, that you would lose all faith in Jesus Christ. Because it was built not on his word and who he was, but it was built on your own happy circumstances. Or what if our worship, our time of, uh, of gathering just didn't seem to scratch your itch anymore? It didn't excite you like it once did. Well, maybe, you're, maybe you are one with a certain excitement that wasn't connected to Jesus Christ and His Word and His worth and His worship and His glory alone. So first it means we should believe in his simple word. But second, I do think there is something for us to, to do in response as well. And we say it to perhaps our kids sometimes when they're 
using their hands instead of their words. We say, use your words. Right? You can handle conflict by using words, not by shoving or pushing or pulling, by using your words. But I want to modify that a little bit, brothers and sisters, with our relationships with one another. Use Jesus's words. They have power. They do things. As we're, as we're meeting before the service, as we're meeting after the service, as you gather together throughout the week, use Jesus' words. In other words, use the Bible's words to speak encouragement and strength to one another. What do they do? They're going to build faith in your brother or sister for whatever trial they're facing, for whatever doubt they're struggling with. They're going to build up your brother and sister in not just a, an encouragement, but actually in a spiritual way. God is going to use that to build one another up. He's going to use those words to strengthen one another. Use Jesus' words. So then what, what is it that you need? Lord, we need to hear from you. 